this show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can sign up to receive two special The Russia Guy custom coasters for your drinks and beverages and whatnot if you pledge at least $10 a month. Thank you to my current 26 patrons. Your support means a lot to me. Howdy, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy, the podcast where I talk to interesting and influential figures in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. I might be adding things to this list at some point. I don't know. Maybe I'll talk to clowns one day. Not today, though. By the way, I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and on this show, I interview people about trending news stories, the overarching themes of Russia watching, and this applies today, the ins and outs of life as a professional in this field. Although, I'm actually not going to be talking with someone that works specifically on Russia. On today's show... My guest is Alessa Bartignan, Crisis Group's analyst for the, I'm going to put this in quotes, the EU Eastern Neighborhood. And of course, they spelled neighborhood with a U because it's, you know, international. Anyway, she's based in Tbilisi and she researches and produces reports on regional security issues in Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan with particular focus on the breakaway regions in this South Caucasus. In her interview, she told me what it's like to go from a career in journalism to the world of professional analysis. She has some really interesting comments about continuing her fieldwork in this new capacity, talking to ordinary farmers and such in conflict zones, and then flying to some international conference where the morning coffee probably retails for more than these people earn in a month. I really enjoyed getting this perspective. And then she also let me ask her some questions that South Caucasus regional experts will probably think are dumb and obvious. But as somebody whose focus is squared narrowly on domestic affairs in Russia, I didn't know the answers. And I was lucky enough to get Alessa's input. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. You came to this line of work from journalism, is that right? Yeah, I was uh, in journalism for more than 10 years. How did that transition come about? Like, how did you go from doing journalism to, is it fair to call this risk analysis? Or is it just analysis? Or what's, is there... How do you term this? Well, it's definitely the other side. Uh, before that, I was the person who would interview, you know, always experts and politicians, officials. Now I'm kind of one of them. And uh, yeah, it's a really different world. Does it feel better? Is it better to be on that oh, side? Oh, it's a bad question, I should say. <laughs> um, it's really very different. Um, and I, I've been with the Cars Group for almost three years now. And before that, I actually, I decided to give up uh, journalists for some time, you know, when I went to study in the UK. So it was actually a very difficult decision for me to give up journalists altogether and um, although so many years passed, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of um, not sure whether that was a right decision. And I, I'm still kind of keeping my door open, <laughs> you know, in case the, the right time comes back, you know, and, and I am able to return to journalism. Because, um, well, I can tell you that I am definitely became more critical of journalists while I see how, how much uh, we and I as a journalist uh, we were missing. Usually we just, uh, you know, scratch the surface and uh, very often we do not really follow the story, although the main things are really are happening often after ma some major news broke somewhere there and made it to the headlines. The world of the officials, experts, think tankers, and it's definitely less transparent. It's uh, much more masculine, which is really very new thing for me. I, I never realized it before joining it, I would say. Not many females, especially young females around. 
And the older I'm getting, the less female I'm seeing around. <laughs> it's kind of a normal thing. It's become a normal thing. And I'm really very sorry for that. That I'm, for example, taking part in some you know, policy discussions. Does not matter here in the region or somewhere in Brussels or other places. And I'm the only female sitting in a big room. Do you think that that does does the does the lack of women does that affect the nature of the analysis? Like, do you think if there were more women, we'd be getting like there'd be just more perspective on certain things that we don't see now? Like it would have a, a, a qualitative effect on the nature of the expertise? You know, there are different uh, gender related uh, studies on this. And I'm afraid that uh, always people who write uh, with books, uh, you know, essays, academic articles, they will criticize me. But I would say that it's mainly caused by the fact that first, the world of the officials, experts, uh, it's not very transparent and much more corrupted. So it's kind of you can see a lot of more, many more people, you know, who get uh, positions uh, just because they are loyal, they are friends. And I would say that actually it's really very difficult to be a mother and have a very senior position at the same time. So I would say that probably these are two main reasons why, why I'm seeing less women the older I'm getting. But yeah, to return to your kind of the question that we started with, journalism is definitely much more exciting. Although everyone, it's kind of normal thing, you know, to have a chat about like how bad is social media and journalism. I'm still very sympathetic to my colleagues. I still consider them colleagues and some amazing work that they are doing. I'm really very sorry that journalists is not very well paid in many places. And I would say that actually, mm, this is one of the reasons why so many professionals, uh, you know, they kind of uh, reach a certain point and then they live mainly for the politics, or at least this is the case uh, in this part of the world. So, but you say that, well, why did you, why did you leave journalism after 10 years? Because you say that you're, you still look at it as, you still try to keep the door open to it. So why did you, what, what? What caused you to leave? You know, if I tell you the truth, you will not believe me. You will say that I'm just lying. No, to I want to hear it. But um, I'm I'm very gullible. Well, you know, I've been traveling to all these conflict zones for a very long time. You know, like, uh, and I had some really very very unique chances to get to the places where no one was getting. And and of course, I I made good friends on different sides. And at some point, I could feel that for when I'm going and interviewing an official or an expert. And I'm asking the question, and I already know the answer. That just became boring. And the second thing is, when you are making friends, you know, especially in the field, like ordinary people, and you go to them year by year, and you see that their life is not really improving. So you're doing your part of the work. Talking about your co- you're talking about colleagues, you no, mean? No, no, no. I'm talking about ordinary people, like, let's say, living in the com- conflict zone, you know, and I'm doing an amazing documentary and receiving prize for that, you know. But actually, I could not really feel that I'm really contributing, you know, to to a certain kind of improvement in, in their life. And, and I could feel that it's not journalism anymore. You know, it's more kind of an activism. It's becoming an activism for me. So I think uh, at a certain point, um, that was uh, just, uh, you know, the feeling that I had. And I'm not sure that I, I could really analyze it properly at that time. But now when I think what was happening five years ago, when I took that decision, this was probably the main thing, you know, that knowing the answers and probably the second that I could, I, I really wanted to see a change and to, in order to make the change, I had to just change the sides, you know, so I, I had to give up journalism and try to do that 
by either joining the politics, which I don't like, and I don't think I will ever be doing that, or, for example, join an organization like International Christ Group, you know, that is still providing you a chance to do a lot of field work and at the same time talking to officials behind the closed doors, making them change things, you know. It's a very challenging <laughs> mission, in a sense, you know, but still, during my work, I, I could see that I can make a difference. You know? And if I were a journalist, I would not be, most probably I would not be able to do that. And you feel like working... As an analyst, you're able to reach policymakers better than you did as a journalist. Um, it depends. Like, for example, when I was a journalist, it was really very easy to get an interview. And look, I was working for really good uh, media outlets like the New York Times. You know, I was their original reporter for six years here in the South Caucasus. So I could give a call and right away, you know, I would see the president or the prime minister. Now I can see them again, but that would be a different conversation. That would be not a question answer. And they give me the lines. There will be a chance for me to argue, you know, and to push for certain things uh, for them to do. I'm not sure that they are very comfortable often, you know, with what, <laughs> what's happening. I mean, if I were a journalist, they, they would be ready, you know, to share their lines. While now they have to still kind of argue with me. So it's a, it's a different different nature of conversation, I would say. And like, what's what is the day to day of being being an, an analyst? Because I mean, with, when you're a journalist, right, you you're 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 made aware of a story either through sources or through other people's reporting, and then you go through the the motions of finding people to comment, or you go to a, a, a physical location to inspect something. When you're an analyst, like you wake up and you brush your teeth, and then what? <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's very much uh, the same uh, what the, the journalists do. So I go to the field. I actually spend. Uh, I, I'm 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 a very fielded person, you know. So I kind of strongly believe that all the policies should be based uh, on the realities that I can observe myself. It's very much about actually taking some shitty cars, living in some shitty places, talking to some really very strange people, explaining to them why I'm I, I'm curious at all. And then bringing that to some really fancy offices and discussing these things, you know, with those who are responsible for talks, negotiations, policy making, and then taking it to the capital of some big states, you know, and discussing with things there, trying to make them understand why a certain thing should be done or why they should exercise uh, pressure or give up with the pressure, you know, and certain things. Sometimes it's really very difficult, I should say, but... But it's rewarding at the same time as well. And so because uh, I, can, I, I can just, uh, you know, see the difference. I, I will just give you one example. In 2016, there was an escalation uh, here in the South Caucasus between Armenian and Azerbaijani troops in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone. And that was the year when I joined the Christ Group. And since then, we had this uh, advocacy line. So we were calling for Yerevan and Baku to have a communication line for direct communication so that if, for example, there is an incident, they at least have a chance, you know, to take a phone and call and like, man, are you really serious? You know, are you starting a war before actually starting uh, responding to that? And um, in the beginning, when we started pushing for that, no one wanted to listen to us. But actually, when the certain moment came and that uh, was the Armenian revolution, and we, we kind of repeated our calls and... They, they finally did it. And just a month ago, I was uh, very close to the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. 
And I was talking to the guy and I met him many times before. And he was looking at me and saying, for the first time during the summer, in 30 years uh, of this conflict, we haven't heard a single shot. And they were able to make use of 150 hectares of more farmland. Or in the neighboring village, the woman was showing me the houses uh, of the people who started repairing it for the first time since the beginning of uh, the conflict, in three decades for the first time. And uh, of course, I cannot take the whole credit for that. Yeah, But at the same time, it's so exciting, you know, to see that your efforts were not useless and that uh, you contributed to something that was able to change uh, the lives of the people who really need it, you know, who really deserve to live a better life. Is this work, is it, is it high stress? Like, are you, do you, are you pulling your hair out a lot of the times? And I mean, oh, is... all the time. <laughs> yeah, because it sounds as though, you know, this is, these are literally matters of life and death. Yeah, definitely. When you go into the field, you are one of them, yeah, and you are talking to them. You're not the one who would go and to uh, speak to with uh, guy, you know, involved in the farming and telling him and lecturing him about some world politics or geopolitics. Uh, you would listen, yeah, to his problem or her problems, and you would try to understand what can be done policy-wise. And then you come to these fancy places, you know, with very expensive conference rooms, and they drink the coffee, and probably that coffee costs the same price as that farm person, you know, that person from the village, you know, spends in, in one week for the whole family. So it's a huge difference and you have to adopt all the time. The second thing for me personally is just changing the context, you know, because, uh, for example, Nagorno-Karabakh is very different from what's happening in Georgia with Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So it's kind of two different worlds and I still have to kind of digest it for myself and not to get lost uh, between the narratives. And the third is, uh, is, of course, personal, you know, because when you work here, when you speak to the people, that their stories become part of your life, especially when you are in it for such a long time. So you kind of start really being involved. You really start, you really want to make a certain thing happen. Yeah. So, and when that does not happen, <laughs> that's so frustrating, I should say. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's just uh, changing uh, your life. That becomes your life, the whole conflict. Do you find that the locals you speak to, do they often have a better grasp on the policy issues than the policymakers? Because I can imagine two scenarios, like one where they are aware of things that the policymakers are just ignorant about, but I could also imagine scenarios where they don't appreciate the challenges of policymaking. Like, are you constantly negotiating between both like their insights and their ignorance, or is it all insights, or is it all ignorance, or what are you finding? You know, there is this joke that taxi drivers are the best experts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I don't know. It depends, you know. What uh, what's really uh, depressing for me personally when, for example, I speak to people, you know, they're talking about certain things that should be done, and I'm talking about ordinary people, yeah, when I'm going into the field, and uh, and and then in the end, but we know that nothing will change, you know. So there is no trust, really, not trust, uh, not only in institutions or in, in some particular leaders, officials, just uh, I think it's really very bad time that we are living now and it's getting worse and worse uh, <laughs> in, in a sense, you know, just because of this uh, geopolitical tensions. Um, and it's just very difficult for people to imagine some small things, you know, that step by step, for example, processes that can lead to certain improvement. 
It's not always like this. Uh, I also meet people, you know, who are very optimistic and they can feed you with different ideas. You know, they can tell you how things can can be done. Unfortunately, in many cases, at least in this region, when people are talking about a better future, they often refer to the past. So they are kind of talking about their Soviet experience, for example. Yeah. We are living now in a very different reality. I was hoping that you could just sort of give me the lay of the land in Abkhazia and, and South Ossetia, because they both, these are regions that are, that are meaningful to the region that I work on, mostly Russia. But it's, they're so absent from the news cycle that it's kind of amazing that these are, these are two areas that are essentially propped up by Moscow, and we never talk about them. And I was wondering, these are places that you go, if I'm not mistaken, and I wanted to know what's going on there. Well, my last time in Savo City, it was in 2009. So I worked there during the war. I was actually the only Georgian reporter at the time who went to Schimvali, and I spent like two months of my life there. So I know the region very well, but I haven't been visiting it for quite a long time now. And I uh, often go to the, what they call the separation line, the conflict divide, you know, and uh, to talk to people there because a lot of developments are happening there. There is this, they call it, like they invited a, a new word, borderization. So basically, you know, security officials from the South Ossetian side, they are trying to build fences uh, that would separate, you know, the entity from the Georgian proper. And um, that affects a lot of people because they lose access to the farmland. Sometimes they lose access to their own houses. You know, they wake up in the morning and they realize that they, now they're in South Ossetia. And um, South Ossetia itself, it's a very uh, interesting region. I still have very good friends and we talk on a regular basis. We sometimes meet in, in different capitals, you know. And it's a very tiny place. It's uh, around 30,000 people. Um, they are very, they were, before the war, they were very much integrated into Georgia and much more integrated than with Russia. They would come to markets in Belize, and that was a normal thing, uh, you know, to come and study, for example, in Belize, to go to Belize hospitals. Now uh, all the contacts ceased, and I think lots of people just feel depressed because on the one hand, you have the war, and that war was a, a big tragedy for the people who live inside South Ossetia. But on the other hand, you know, you kind of have to completely change your life and start moving and, and traveling to the northern Caucasus uh, of, of Russia all the time. It does not matter what you need. And many people of my age, they just decide to leave. They do not see opportunities, and uh, they pack their things, and they mainly live for Russia. And I think their life before the war, it was still kind of much more exciting in the sense that they could come to the capital. And look, I mean, Belize is still the capital of the whole South Caucasus. It's uh, the most vibrant and uh, most active capital. And now they go to Vladikavkaz. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure Vladikavkaz is a nice city, and but still it's a province. It's a province in, in Russia with its own many problems that people have there. Abkhazia is an amazing place and was definitely my region. <laughs> I, I started going there in 2010 and I do it on a regular basis. Um, this is a very small slice of land uh, squeezed between huge mountains and very beautiful sea. People there, they are still very much locked in, in their thinking with the war that took place uh, in, in the 90s. And um, I'm still getting surprised how much people are linked to that war. 
And it, it's, of course, it has to do with the fact that many lost their relatives and the war took place in Abkhazia itself. So the people there, they still have to live with its results. They are just visible. You walk along the street and you see, you still see destroyed houses, you know, you still see destroyed buildings. And the second thing that just the place is, has been really very isolated since the war. And I think Russia's recognition, in a sense, opened the world for many, many Abkhaz because Before that, they were literally locked in Abkhazia without any possibility to make business, to go somewhere for education. But now, yeah, now they can board the car and they can go to Sochi, the Sochi area, or to Moscow or some other places. I think Abkhazia is facing a major problem now because uh, 10 years passed and many people are questioning, look, I mean, we are now recognized, but what, why our kind of state structures are not functioning? And they're calling for reforms and they are so serious about that. I think many people from outside the world, you know, they do not really realize how much Abkhaz do really believe in their independence. And that's very frustrating for people who live there because uh, they haven't had experience of being a functional kind of entity, you know, with functional state structures for such a long time. <laughs> I mean, when part of the Soviet Union, it was really very, it's, it was different, right? So now it's really very difficult to find even a group of some smart people, you know, who would, uh, for example, draft a piece of law on taxation that would allow, for example, economic development there, not to mention dysfunctional police or dysfunctional courts, And and that's really frustrating. I, for example, have a very good friend and he he has a daughter. He has been waiting for this kid for a very long time. And the daughter went to the sea, you know, in the beginning of the summer season and spent all three months uh, of summer at, a, at the hospital. And why it's happening is just because the water is not clean and all the toilet stuff goes to the sea. And it's because, again, they are not able to organize, you know, <laughs> even the elementary services for themselves. That's really very, uh, very frustrating for many people there. And I know that people can look at Abkhazia and in many cases, they kind of, you know, look at it only from the perspective of Russia. I understand that. I fully get it. Um, my, my main interest is still kind of looking into the society. And what I've been observing is that actually with frustration, with a lack of confidence in the future, it adds with sentiments of kind of, so if we're not able to rule ourselves, maybe it's better still to join Russia. So I've been seeing more and more people uh, like this. They are definitely not uh, the ones, a crucial number that will, <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't know, call for a referendum and tomorrow <laughs> ask Russia <laughs> to get annexed. But uh, it's just uh, another indication for me, you know, that uh, it's uh, it's not going well there inside. And it's just sad, you know, for to, to see people who have had uh, really high hopes in 2008 when they got recognized by Russia. And now they're just uh, lost. But it sounds like the consequences of the war have been fairly different for, for each republic. Or Do we call them republics? What do we call them? Well, I call them breakaway regions to avoid okay. kind of... <laughs> okay, so yes. So the, the, yeah. the, the consequences of the war for both of the breakaway regions have been fairly different then, in the sense that the Abkhaz have kind of... The, the world has opened up for them, but for the South Ossetians, it's, or for the people in South Ossetia... It's closed off to some degree. I, I would say so, and and one would have to pay special attention to the geography. So South Ossetia itself is just like literally located inside Georgia, and while Abkhazia still has you know with access to the sea and it's uh, 
it's kind of on its own in a way, and it has been on its own since the 90s, while Salvasidia was very much integrated before 2008. And the second thing is, again, in 2008, the war really uh, took place. I mean, the real war, the real fighting took place in South Ossetia. And uh, in Abkhazia, the war was in the 90s. So what happened is they basically received the recognition because of the war in South Ossetia. No real big fighting uh, took place in 2008 in Abkhazia. That's my interview with Elias Vartanian, Crisis Group's analyst for the EU Eastern Neighborhood. Please check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to her Twitter profile and her page at Crisis Group. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider skipping over to patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, my name, where you can make a contribution. Don't forget about the new audio file supporter tier either while you're at it. It gets you two custom coasters featuring the podcast's artwork by Yulia Drobova. Thanks to everybody already pitching in, and I'm happy to get feedback on Twitter, by the way, if ever you have a comment or a question about the show. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. Погадать на короля Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля